Thank you for listening to Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti, recorded live at the Sat Yoga Ashram in Costa Rica. To join us for a life-changing meditation retreat, or to make a donation to support this transformational work, please visit our website, www.satyoga.org. To access more teachings or guided meditations from Shunyamurti, please visit the members section of our website or our YouTube channel, Sat Yoga Institute. Namaste. The satsang form is undoubtedly the oldest ongoing mode of spiritual convocation in order to attain realization of God. It goes back to the Upanishads at the least, which were actually satsang notes that were made of the statements and metaphors, aphorisms, parables of the sages. But it went on for thousands of years before the Upanishads were written on an oral basis entirely. And all later forms of religious meetings, whether in synagogues or churches or mosques, were all based on the principle of the satsang. Sat meaning supreme truth, a gathering for the purpose of realizing truth. The truth of who you are, the truth of God, the truth of the nature of reality. Gradually, as the level of consciousness of human beings fell, two separate sorts of discourses would be offered at satsangs. A discourse of duality and a discourse of non-duality. Once the ego took hold in human beings, and they fell from not only Atman consciousness, but even from soul consciousness into the ego, into the level of mind identified with the mortal body, then for most beings in that condition, the only way to reach God consciousness is through love, love of God. And this is the origin of the mode of spirituality known as bhakti, or worship. And there are two kinds of bhakti. There is ordinary bhakti that is aimed at the ego at such a low and mundane level of consciousness that they cannot conceptualize a formless God 
or a God beyond thought, a God beyond the limitations of anthropomorphic action. And so religions began to develop modes of worshiping a God outside in some heaven above or in some other dimension, but a God with form. Or a God, even if without form, but a God who would either take form occasionally or would act in such a way that the will of God would be known to all. And this worship of God became intertwined with the worship of nature because the actions of God would also be natural actions. But gradually texts would be written in various religions which would pose God as having human feelings, being angry, being happy, being willing to sacrifice humanity, being willing to create floods and slavery, but would also bring liberation. And there would be a whole set of mythologies about the works and acts of God on earth. But this all led to somewhat of an imaginarized conception of God as functioning with somewhat of a human level of intelligence regarding the earth through a telescope and deciding if it was good or evil, if it deserved to be destroyed or sustained. And other religions, once even the formless God working through acts of God, as they would be called, usually catastrophic, would need to have God in a human form, and thus an incarnation was necessary, and thus the Christian dispensation because a human being is more likely to be worshipped, understood, related to by the human mind. And so various religions developed the mode of dogma that would allow the belief in forms that God could take. In India, they were far more imaginative in the West, and there God takes forms of all kinds of beings, not just men and women and angels and fairies and uh, celestial entities, but animals and various kinds of forms that are not even known on earth. But in this sort of bhakti, the worship goes outward, the mind goes outward into images. It goes out into an attempt to understand history as 
as if history itself reveals the presence of God, which is not to say that it doesn't, but if history is mythologized, then it will be seen through a certain prism of an ideology that is located within the ego level of consciousness and will forget the fact that God consciousness is orders of magnitude beyond the human level of intelligence. But the idea of the worship of a being, whether it's an icon or a, a candle flame, as the Jews would have the Ner Tamid as a symbol of God above the ark of the Torah, or often the Torah itself is worshipped as an incarnation of the sacred text, the word of God. Or whether it is the worship of some sacred talisman, a relic of the true cross, or any of the various other forms that the egoic mind can literally grasp onto, or at least figuratively, and believe it has some kind of knowledge of God that brings a kind of soothing and peace to the heart that wants to feel it is good and it is on a good path and that God is offering his grace to those who are true believers and who follow the commandments of God and who realize the necessity of living according to Dharma or to the law of love But then there is another level of bhakti, which we call para-bhakti, the supreme bhakti, which begins with the understanding that the kingdom of God is within. The kingdom of God is not of this world, but the kingdom of God is within our heart, is within our consciousness. And it is because the source of consciousness can have no form, but also can have no image of any sort and can have no mythology and can have no objective correlative. The realization of the kingdom of God within and of God as the self within requires only one thing. It doesn't require particular forms of behavior. It doesn't require belief systems. It doesn't require particular forms of action in the world. It requires the withdrawing of attention within to the source of consciousness. And the source of consciousness within can be attained only through the silencing of the surface levels of consciousness. 
until the ego level of mind has been stilled, has been flatlined, has been eliminated as an interference pattern. The attention gets stuck in the entertaining of thoughts and the identification with the I thought, which in turn is identified with the body, that keeps one within the holographic frame of reference of this phenomenal plane and of intentions that are mundane, that are based on the possibilities of actions of the physical body and that are motivated by the bodies and the ego mind as a bodily motor on the twin motives of desire and fear. And it is between desire and fear that the ego is crucified. And because of the power of both of these drives, it is very difficult to withdraw the attention beyond the pull of the mind that wants to draw one back into a narrative a narrative of desire or a narrative of fear or a narrative based on one's relations uh, to one's actions that have produced either remorse or guilt or shame or anxiety or depression or any of the pathologies of the ego. And in order to compensate for that, the ego mind thinks it can go into a kind of euphoric denial of its fear and enter into a kind of manic state or hypomanic state. And so the ego mind and the emotional state of the ego oscillates in this bipolarity of manic depression between desire and fear. And when it feels omnipotently able to achieve all of its desires, then it calls that happiness. But it's always temporary. And then the pendulum swings back to fear. And if not fear of anything else in one's immediate space, there is always the fear of aging and death. And so long as the consciousness vibrates at the level of ego consciousness, there is suffering. The only way out of that suffering is to rise to higher levels of consciousness. And the highest possible level of consciousness that is completely free of suffering and even free of the tendency to fall back into suffering and that has absolute knowledge of the nature of reality, of the ego, of the soul, of the entire process of the cosmos and therefore no need to enter into it to learn anything, that level of consciousness can be referred to as God. And that level of consciousness 
already is the source of who you think you are. It's the source of your life energy, the source of your existence. But to attain that level, to move beyond the ego deeper within into the soul level, the soul consciousness level being that in which we recognize that what the ego took to be an external world is actually its own dream. And nothing that happens in the world is an accident. And nothing that happens in the world is harmful. But it is all a teaching and a blessing but the blessing comes only when we learn the lesson meant by the experience that may indeed seem to be painful or confusing or ugly. But once we understand the message and have taken to heart its meaning and made the internal transformations required so that such an event of suffering does not recur, then we become free. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti podcast. For more information on programs and retreats, click on the calendar section of our website, www.satyoga.org. Our work is made possible by the generous support of our listeners, viewers, and members. To make a donation, please visit the donate page of our website. We thank you for your support in our mission to share this timeless wisdom with the world. Namaste.